Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Um, I am um, welcoming, I'm your host today. It's I'm Ashley. You recognize my voice by now. I'm here with Dougald Hine, who has agreed to co-host with me. Um, Dougald introduced me um, to Adam Greenfield, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, one of Adam's projects called Lifehouses. Um, so first I'll have Dougald explain, you know, sort of the backstory of how he came across this project, and then I'll have um, have him toss it over to Adam to introduce himself. So welcome. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really good to be back, Ashley. This is exciting being a co-host here for the first time. <laughs> well, I mean, Adam and I, we can probably can dig into this later. We had crossed paths a little bit further back in time through uh, I guess a shared interest in Yvonne Illich. Yeah. But how we ended up having this conversation today is that a few weeks ago, you wrote something, Adam, about this idea of life houses. And several different people forwarded that piece to me and said, this sounds like something that um, really crosses paths with stuff you've been thinking about and talking about and working with. And I read it and I felt that in a really deep way because you were talking in the piece about... You know, this question of places of worship, churches and chapels primarily, you know, over 50,000 of them in the UK, many of them you know, increasingly sitting empty. What happens to them? What role do they play? What role could they play within our communities? And you were asking this in a very pragmatic way from a kind of perspective that a lot in common with the kind of questions I've been thinking and talking about for years with Dark Mountain but also, I mean, it's not necessarily known to everyone who's followed Dark Mountain, but in 2009, the same year that Paul and I published the manifesto and launched that project, I also founded an organization called Spacemakers that grew out of a meetup that I was running in London for anyone who was interested in reusing and reimagining space that was being underused or overlooked within cities. And that's still going. It's an agency these days run by my good friend Matt Weston. And so I feel like sort of both sides of uh, this, both the kind of rethinking buildings and the how do we get real about the depth of the trouble we're in and the things worth doing in the face of it have been so central to my work. And then there's the, the minor detail that I grew up around churches. And literally, you know, we're recording this uh, on a Friday at the end of April, last Sunday, so five days ago, my dad had the closing service at the church that he's been very active in in his retirement that is now closing down because the congregation has become too small and too elderly to carry the weight of the responsibility of this old building mm. any longer. And so it just all feels very close to home for me. Um, and I'm kind of keen as someone who moves between worlds to see what I can do to spark some conversations with different groups of people that might pick up on something that it felt like you'd woven together in a really kind of in a way that was in a way that was getting people's attention in what you wrote in this piece. So Adam, maybe if you could kind of talk us through how you ended up writing this piece about life houses and tell us a bit more about what's in it. Sure. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, the, the fundamental idea is about repurposing spaces, which are going unloved and are at, at risk in the decline of their congregations of falling into disrepair and, and disuse and um, might no longer be of active service to the communities around them. Um, and 
what triggered this concern for me, frankly, was, you know, I, I was reading The Guardian. You know, I kind of scanned The Guardian, The New York Times every day just to keep abreast of what mainstream, you know, consensus opinion is is shaping itself around. And... So I have to assume that his timing was deliberate. Uh, it, Simon Jenkins is, is a columnist in The Guardian that I don't have much use for. I, I virtually never agree with anything he has to say, and I find him you know, almost unbearably pompous in the way that he expresses the opinions that I, I so heartily disagree with. Um, but, you know, he, he caught my attention. You know, there was something about, uh, I forget what the headline was, but it was like, you know, let's take these underutilized churches and put them to good and I scanned through the piece and I thought, okay, you know, there's something to this. I, I kind of, I hate myself for doing so, but now I'm agreeing with Simon Jenkins. He's made me agree with him. Thanks a lot, Simon. Um, and, and yet I thought he missed a trick. You know, he was basically starting from this idea that, uh, you know, the profession of Christian faith is in decline in the United Kingdom, that certainly the established church, the Anglican church, the Church of England, um, is declining more precipitously than most denominations. And that, as you note, there are these 50,000 buildings strewn around the land, each of which was built to last, each of which is at the physical and social heart of its community, each of which could potentially be returned to a place in our affective lives and and our, our you know if you know, I'm not afraid of the word spiritual our spiritual lives the things that we do together to mark the turns of the season to mark the the, the stages of our lives you know I I believe that we all have enduring need for those rituals whether or not they have supernatural or religious content or not I'm less concerned with um, I do think that we also need ways to come together as communities and, and learn how to get along with one another across dimensions of difference. I think that's really critical to the project of collective survival uh, over the period that, that we've entered, uh, which I don't think I need to explain to anybody listening to this podcast no. to what the issue is with that. Um, and, and that was the aspect that I thought Jenkins missed. He, he didn't really um, situate, you know, the, the proposal was kind of abstract. It could have been uttered at, at any time in the past 30, 40 years. Um, it wasn't really geared to our particular moment in history. And what I had, you know, kind of on the shelf, as it were, waiting for, for the moment to, to be appropriate, was a, a whole set of ideas about just what you would do with a space like that in a time of climate system collapse and earth system collapse. Uh, this goes back for me to my involvement in Occupy Sandy. Um, after Superstorm Sandy hit New York City, uh, the place where Occupy Sandy set up its disaster relief recovery distribution hubs was in two churches in Brooklyn. And, and one of them, 520 Clinton Avenue, is the one that I worked in particularly. Um, and so I saw you know, with my own eyes and, and knew with my own body what it was like to do mutual aid-based disaster relief and recovery work in a, a previously sacralized space. Um, and then on top of that, I folded in a bunch of stuff that just, you know, has cropped up in the course of 
you know, 30 or 40 years of my life now of paying attention to uh, apro tech stuff and convivial technology stuff and 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 anarchist understandings of uh, you know Clifford Harper's old um, visions illustrations. I don't know if people are familiar with those, but ways in which anarchist and self-organized communities could could repurpose underutilized spaces. Um, and then finally, my my partners work at our local food hub. And uh, it, you know, as as listeners may or may not know, uh, you know there are more food banks and food hubs. Uh, in the United Kingdom at this point in time than there are bank branches. I mean, times are desperate and and people are falling back on what has so far been offered charitably and I think could more profitably be offered on the mutual aid model. So that is the fundamental framing. What would you do with a an old stone village church in ways that could make it useful to people who are suffering from the impacts of neoliberal austerity and climate system collapse. That's the fundamental proposition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Google, do you want yeah, to you, go ahead? I was going to say, you talked about you know, one of the, so the two, two, uh, two little bits to add on to that, that stuck out for me in the piece. One was this naming of the, the idea of, you know, what if we reimagine these buildings as life houses? And I feel like that's part of why this has kind of caught people's imagination is because there's something in that way of naming yeah. speaks to people. And then the other bit is you, you were sort of listing out some of the examples of what's going to be needed, what's already needed. And you were talking about infrastructure and these as kind of spaces that almost can, can serve as the, as you saw in Sandy, as the kind of uh, hubs of an emergency level of infrastructure for when the infrastructure that we take for granted is failing us on the assumption that that's going to become a more and more normal thing in in the times ahead. Yeah, and, and that that should be distributed as well. I mean, uh, I'll just, you know, really, really quickly explain what I mean by that. Um, you know, centralized networks uh, are vulnerable to a single point of failure. When you take out the command node or the central place in a centralized network, the whole network falls apart, it delaminates, and, and the individual nodes of the network can no longer communicate with one another. And decentralized networks, which I think are generally preferable to centralized ones, um, merely, you know, replicate that structure kind of on down toward the edge of the network. It's, it's a um, slightly more robust way of thinking of things, but it, it's still vulnerable to being severed when, when uh, master nodes in the network are severed from one another. A distributed network has the property that, you know, instead of there being like one central power generation plant and that piping power all over the country, every life house, you know, could in principle generate its own power, you know, generate its own clean water, like filter its own drinking water, um, and, and be really robust to the disruption of infrastructural networks that way. I'm really very keen on what you're saying about the magic of naming. I think that, you know, it's not like these ideas haven't been around. I mean, you know, some of the feedback I've gotten since publishing the article has been, you know, well, you you pompous bastard, you know, they, what, what are you trying to claim credit for? These ideas have been around in the air for ages. And I'm like, yes, yes, of course they have. And I'm not trying to take credit or ownership over any of it. I want people to, you know, do what they will in their own community, you know, by their own lights. Um, but the naming of things 
is crucial. And I think that if it helps a, a fairly diffuse set of ideas acquire specificity and concreteness in people's mind by calling it a life house, I agree with you. I think that that's the only reason that this is propagating, why this is sort of catching fire in the imagination of people. Because, you know, by hook or by crook, somebody came along and gave it a name that, that allows it to lodge in people's imagination. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I said, um, so, okay, I have a couple of thoughts. One, when you were talking about the infrastructure um, point, um, I did some research on Earthships. I don't know if either of you are aware of this uh, technology, but Earthships are this, for, for our listeners, um, this form of architecture invented by this guy in um, New Mexico, Michael Reynolds. And basically the idea is that the building itself is self-sufficient. So it's like self, at least close to self-sufficient in um, water. It has its own san water sanitation systems, um, gray water and black water systems, energy um, and heating and cooling are kind of like built into this passive solar design of it. Um, I love that. And um, and I I did some research with the Earthship builders when they came here to Uruguay and built a hotel near us. Um, and I met all the team. And it's actually like a really small community. Once you once you've met them, you're kind of like in and you know how it works. And it's like only a few people really who like have stuck through the whole thing. Um, so I did some interviews with them and it, it's just so cool. And I and one of the guys um, went to Puerto Rico um, and was doing Earthships like for hurricane resistance and for like, you know, in post disaster, like these buildings can continue to be self-sufficient. So I love, love that idea. Um, and then another thing I've been thinking about a ton recently, um, I just got into Christopher Lash, who's well known for his culture of narcissism book, but he also in a lot of his other writing had similar ideas to like Wendell Berry about, um, you know, I guess, looking back toward tradition and re-embracing tradition in some ways, um, you know, looking at looking to, I don't know, more self-sufficiency, um, community resilience, like connection to place. Um, and I think his whole life, he was basically trying to like spin his wheels on this vision. And I just have this feeling like maybe now is the historical moment where some of these things come to pass because of the, I'm like kind of a Marxist because of the material conditions that we're in, you know? Um, and so I wonder whether or not you have this feeling like we are in a, like a, a historical moment where these kinds of ideas that have been around, like you mentioned, um, come to pass, but what I'm curious to know what your theory is of how, or either of you, how it plays out, because I know, like probably all three of us have done or been around various activities that were like this and then they kind of bubbled up for a while and then they lost steam like what keeps people showing up potentially what is the theory here like what moment are we in where where like this actually could potentially pick up steam so Dougald, you should probably speak to this from your own perspective, because I'm sure you've got very interesting things to say about this. But um, in my writing, you know, I'm working on a book at the moment um, that's called Beyond Hope. And uh, the subtitle is like, you know, Collective Power and Mutual Care in the Long Emergency. And that last bit is important 
you know, I do understand the period that we're in now as, as a long emergency. Uh, and, and what happens typically in mutual aid situations is that there is an inciting event, right? There is some kind of pulse event, some kind of crisis um, that rouses people to defense of their lives and their communities. Um, and they are willing and able to exert, you know, an arbitrary amount of, of energy. You know, they'll, they'll give everything. There's, there, there, there might not be anything left you know, for them to do their, they, they might not be able to do their job. They might not be able to, you know, the, the fabric of everyday life might have come undone, but they have all of this energy and heart and presence to give to the, the effort of, of recovery and repair. And then typically what we find is that the moment passes, right? Everyday life reasserts itself. Right. Uh, you know, institutional structures flood back into the frame. Um, and the urgency just evaporates. And then all of a sudden, there's something almost faintly embarrassing. I mean, I remember the last days of, of, of Occupy Sandy, you know, toward, you know, uh, March of the next year, it was like, there's something faintly embarrassing about being back in the distro hub, you know, after everyday life. And it, 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 there was a, almost like this evaporative cooling effect whereby like the last people left there were the people who had nothing better to do. Mm. Um, and so what I'm trying to imagine in the book is how do you maintain that sense of commitment without bureaucratizing? You know, you, you have to embed these purposes in some kind of structure, yep. in some kind of institution with ongoing procedures and ongoing ways of doing, but it's fatal for that to become bureaucratized. It's fatal mm. for that to become ossified in habit. Um, and it's not an easy question, right? It's not straightforward. I don't think anybody's ever successfully done it. <laughs> um, but there, uh, as you say, you know, um, the, the historical moment that we're in, there are material conditions, there are enabling conditions. And what I've gotten out of my participation in these moments personally, this is something I'm always at pains to point out, you know, in the week before Superstorm Sandy hit New York, I was about as privileged as it's possible to be in Western culture. I mean, I, you know, I had a good role in a good position. I was a published author. There was all this like, you know, inducements to the ego. I should have liked my life quite a lot. I should have really enjoyed being who I was. Mm. If you went, you know, kind of by what the world is telling us that we ought to value. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. And the moment Occupy Sandy happened, I was reduced to, you know, my first name on a piece of white tape slapped onto my chest. I had no identity. Mm. I had no ego. I had no, you know, nothing to my name. You know, I was a pair of hands. And mostly what I did in Occupy Sandy was, was help move stuff off the back of trucks into church pews and sort it, you know, and, and prepare it for like going out again. It was the most profoundly gratifying thing that I've done in my adult life. Mm. I derive more pleasure and satisfaction from that than any of the other things which are supposedly like, you know, rewarding me for my status in society. Mm -hmm. And I suspect, you know, life under late capitalism is shit for most of us. It is grueling. It is dehumanizing. It is compartmentalizing. It's degrading. And I suspect it won't take that much 
of the physical and social environment around them. So I think that's probably you know part of the answer to the question is that, is that when you do this stuff, it's actually incredibly rewarding and it feels amazing. That was like the the, the dirty secret of Occupy Sandy was that it felt great. Mm-hmm. And obviously you don't want to be deriving you know pleasure from from a circumstance that's that's really rooted in great suffering but there's something to this um but Dougal, i'd really be very curious to hear your thoughts <laughs> about this given your experience mm. well I, I i really enjoyed listening to what you were saying there adam because it you know that sense of there being a kind of a lack of meaning and then an eruption of meaning. I mean, Rebecca Solnit writes about this, obviously, in her book about the the sort of remarkable utopias that come into being in the aftermath of, of disasters. And then this question of, like, how do you sustain that beyond the point I totally recognise that point where it suddenly starts to feel embarrassing, the same thing that felt saturated in meaning because it's kind of not cool as things reassert their, their ordinariness I'm like permanently rupturing the structures of cool. That might be like a big part of what we're really talking about in all of these conversations, I guess. But I remember like one of the places in my adult life that uh, was definitely a life house was when I stumbled into Access Space, this open source media lab in Sheffield, which I walked into in sort of 2005. And at that point, it had already it was already the longest running internet learning center in the UK because basically the government would fund a series of things that would open up all over the country. Three years later, the money would run to an end and they would all close down. And there was this little place in Sheffield that was just running on a shoestring using bits of arts funding, but had this extraordinary sense of life in it from the first time I walked into that space using recycled computers, open source technology, a self-referral approach, which meant that everybody who was in there was there for their own reasons rather than because they were part of a program. And that led me into this kind of network of hacker spaces around the UK and then the rest of Europe. And I remember getting to know some of the people in London who were involved with this stuff. And by the time I arrived on the scene, it was already kind of dying. Saul Albert, who was one of the key um, sort of instigators and caretakers within those networks, I remember hearing him talk about it and go, why did it work in Berlin and not in London? Mm. And his answer was that in Berlin, they created a myth. They created a myth of a giant spaceship that had crashed and was half buried under the city and sticking up in all these different places. And various Berlin landmarks were part of the crashed flying saucer. But also all of their hacker spaces belonged within this mythos. And so he said, whereas in the London group, the London sort of network, they played everything out on the plane of politics. And that was how they dealt with their disagreements. And they all fell out with each other and it went sour and things gradually died. In Berlin, it was like they turned it all into a LARP with this kind of mythic narrative. <laughs> and you might be seeing where I'm going here, which is, you know, without wanting to offer an explanation of the history of religion that simply says that's all that's going on. One of the things that we might be dealing with if we start getting into a conversation with churches and discovering they're not quite empty yet is that there is within them or tangled up with them in some way a history of creating multi-generational spaces which at their best have been multi-generational spaces of, of mutual aid 
And part of what's interesting, I mean, Ashley, you bringing Lash into the conversation and Wendell Berry and so on is, I think one of the things that is the result of the material circumstances we're in is it throws together people who do and don't have positive relations to tradition in general or specifically. And I feel like that's also part of what's interesting about the invitation you're making with this project, Adam, is because as I've started kind of talking to some of my friends who are more church involved than I am, they go, well, this is really interesting. We'd like to meet this guy. And, you know, this is kind of how we see ourselves already. Yeah. Um, that even the language of a life house, I can imagine plenty of churches that would recognize their sense of what matters about what they do in that that language, which is just an interesting thing to negotiate around. And the other thing that came back to me was I suddenly had a memory of being, it must be 1998, when the G7 came to Birmingham, and it was kind of at the height of the anti-globalization movement, Reclaim the Streets was really big in the UK, but there was also this thing that was the, I guess it was the Jubilee debt campaign for cancelling um, what in those days we used to call third world debt. And so Reclaim the Streets had organised this big Reclaim the Summit thing where they took over a whole stretch of urban motorway in the middle of Birmingham and so on. And I went on a bus from Oxford with some of the most amazing activists I knew, you know, people like Kate Wilson and a guy called, I think he was called Wraith Smythe or something, who was a a postgraduate law student who used to go in his vacations and defend people on death row in the States um, and pro bono. And he was running green action when I arrived at university. And I literally remember coming over this hill with my anarchist friends. And then they caught sight of this human chain because 50,000 people from Methodist churches and Anglican churches and Quaker meeting houses and so on from around the UK had come on buses to Birmingham to form a human chain around the summit, which was so big that they had to move the summit out of the city and relocate it to a golf course. I remember seeing these amazing, brilliant activists, just seeing their eyes open, all these not terribly political people who had shown up and brought a G7 summit to a halt because their involvement with their churches had taken them to a place of there is something not right with the way that the world is being run and we need to put our bodies here and say something and do something about it. And so I'm kind of curious, even in its diminished form, the number of people who show up on a Sunday to, or other days of the week, to places of worship in the UK, you know, is vastly larger than lots of the, you know, kind of amazing movements that I've had connections with over the years. And whether in this conversation you're starting, there might be some really interesting encounters that happen around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And no, you're absolutely right. And it, I promise you that even the most careworn church congregation in my part of London, there are 10 times as many people at services than there are at the, you know, the anarchist uh, cafe in in the Kurdish (laughs) center. Uh, It's, it's something that I, I'm getting at in the book. I, I tr- I'm trying to make this point to people. You know, I'm a, I'm an unregenerate, you know, anarcho-socialist, right? I you know call. I, I think that's probably the most accurate name for for my politics. I'll answer to it. I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, and the point that I try to get across to other people who share my politics is that you know something like Occupy Sandy. Most of most of the people who do anarchy are not anarchists. 
most of us are doing anarchy all the time. This is this is you know an argument that Colin Ward was famous for making. Mm-hmm. That most of the way in which certainly working class people, but but actually most people get through life is not in compliance with you know the, this sort of bureaucratized state formula. We, we're always on the fiddle in some way. We're always like working things out, sanding things down between the cracks and behind the scenes to make you know fundamentally unworkable structures work for us. Mm-hmm. And by necessity, that involves people who, you know, the overwhelming majority of people, that may, there, there were 60,000 volunteers in Occupy Sandy. There may have been a thousand of them that were like dedicated cadre. You know, the rest of those people are New Yorkers with every stripe of political affiliation under the sun. And, you know, yes, there was a pragma, a local consensus that, you know, this was going to be um, a space that had certain kind of values running it. If you couldn't sign on to those values, you were probably welcome to to leave and and do your thing somewhere else. Uh, And I think that worked. But you know, if, if as, you know, an anarchist and a person of the left, if I couldn't communicate directly, respectfully, openly, honestly, presently with people who do not share my, my values and beliefs, you know, I don't think I could ever get anything done. Um, the world is not convinced of, you know, my specific set of values, to put it mildly. And, you know, Ashley, we've had some of these conversations before that, um, what the, the conversation that you're convening does gather people from, you know, who might never talk to one another otherwise, who might be suspicious of one another otherwise, mm-hmm. um, who might well be at odds otherwise. And you've identified something that speaks to all of us. And I, I have to think there's room for more of that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it, as you know, it doesn't mean that you surrender your core values. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that you let go of the things that that you, you regard as core commitments. But you have to be able, where it's possible, to work in coalition with people who might not agree with you at all about other things. Yep. And, and you know, I have so many thoughts on this, but um, <clears throat> I had this big epiphany when I did my dissertation research for my PhD because... Um, I wanted to talk to people who grew food for themselves. Um, of course, I'm from a city, so I thought I'll talk to city people and community gardens. And I was speaking with a fellow grad student who is a rural, uh, grew up rural and was like, why are you not talking to rural people when you're talking about people growing food for themselves? I was like, I don't know, because I have an urban bias, probably. So I included these rural people and the, just the the um similarity in answers like completely blew open my whole theory about like basically I think how how positive social change might happen and I I, it's it's fundamentally like these dimensions of difference um can totally fall away in the service of praxis in the service of like neighborliness um in my research, it was like um, people were, I went to this, um, I have this memory, I went to this uh, urban agriculture livestock expo, and it was like so many different people, urban, rural, and there were like people brought goats and and like not actual bees, but a beehive to show how it worked and chickens, like 
in this uh, agricultural high school on the south side of Chicago, um, where I'm from. And um, and it was just so cool. People like were just striking up conversations about like, how do you handle the winter? You know, how do you handle pests? How do you? And they're just talking about this practical matters. Um, and then I think what you were saying, oh my gosh, I had chills, Adam, when you said I was just a pair of hands. Like there is something that is so profound about um, letting go of the ideology and just like you, your your body is a vessel for service. Um, and yeah. I think there's something yeah. that can really sustain there. But then I'm with Dougal too. Like part of this, the Doomer Optimism conversation is a lot, what happens to a lot of us is we go through a, a period I'm just going to like name this because I think it's very funny. I know a lot of people who who are like look back in history, read the collapse of complex collapse of civilizations of various collapse books, Jared Diamond Taint or whatever, and then think like, "Oh, I'm just an anarcho primitivist." Like, I guess the whole thing was just all a mistake. Like, maybe language itself was a mistake. <laughs> you go through this arc and then you go back and then you're like, well, maybe it was the printing press. Um, maybe it was a written word that where we really fell from grace. And then and then you come to a point where you're like, no, I mean, we just live in this society. We live in civilization. I have to make peace with it. I can't like escape from it, really, if I want to participate at all. Um, and so you kind of make um, concessions to civilization while also like looking to the past for um it, you know, guidance. And so I think about something like, here's an example. Um, what I, I read a bunch of anthropology before becoming a mother and, and that informed my decision to do like natural childbirth and co-sleeping and extended breastfeeding, which is like um, paleolithic in nature. Um, and it's like traditional, like our bodies did this for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. And it's different what we did in the Neolithic. Um, and that was like helpful to look back to that. And I could, I, that could fit into modern life for me. I made it happen. Um, and so thinking mm -hmm. about like, we kind of like, we end up trying to like recreate traditions and then, um, I don't know, in some ways I would say it's a little hubristic because we think something like, well, what if we just had a space and <laughs> Dougal was saying this too, what if we had a space that where we spent every one one day a week there and we thought about the seasons and the periods and the and we we celebrated shifts in our life together with the community and we helped each other and there was like a myth that kept people coming it's like yeah that exists <laughs> it's called religion um yeah. but some people have terrible and have had difficult experiences with those institutions so the the important question is how do we like move forward acknowledging all of that the messiness and then get back um to i don't know just just make it work in our current lives you know where with all of this it, tradition and all of the the best um and most sustainable or most meaningful ways in which human beings have organized themselves through human history and before um how do we move forward with that in the in the world that we currently are in um, that's basically the question of the podcast. So not that we can answer that here, but um, that's the framing I take at least. Yeah, it's huge. Um, 
and I, I suspect that everybody's going to have a slightly different answer, which complicates things a little bit. Right? But, but it's like, good. That's right. That's probably the best way to approach it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, and I think that making room for that, you know, a world in which many worlds can exist um, mm -hmm. is, is the challenge of our time, if you will. God, that sounds pretentious when I say it like that, but it's true. Um, I keep coming back to this idea of service, right? You, you said becoming, you know, a vessel of service. And, and of course, when I was 16 and I was first attracted to, to anarchist thought, um, you know, the slogan was non-servian, like I will not serve. And this, I, I keep turning over and over in my mind, the tension between voluntary service and involuntary right. yep um that there is nothing more liberating as you were saying there's nothing more fulfilling than making yourself having the space and the freedom to make yourself of service to others but there is nothing more oppressive than being told that you must serve and i think that one of the one of the tensions in creating this institutionalized space for coming together is that, you know, on the one hand, you want there to be an incentive for people to participate. And on the other hand, if it ever comes to feel obligatory, I'll tell, I'm the very first person, you know, I am, I don't know if it's like I have oppositional defiant disorder or I'm just you know, <laughs> naturally contrarian. You know, I'm the very first person that's gonna be like, you don't, you don't get to tell me what to do, you yeah. know? um so finding that that trigger point in each of us where we we find something that affirms us and you don't need to make some kind of incentive calculus it's just you want to be there you want to be with these people you want to be having these conversations i, I worry i worry a lot and i think that it's partially political and discursive and it's partially socio-technical and it's it's you know probably nutritional for all i know <laughs> i worry that we've all become intolerable to one another and and i don't mean you know like i, I don't mean that that like we can't agree politically i mean that almost atomized to the individual level that, that like we almost can't form any groups above the level of a dyad anymore <laughs> and and most of the dyads you know most of the couples seem to be in a fair amount of tension as well. Mm -hmm. it, whether it's because we're staring at screens all the time or we have algorithms like tailor our media consumption to us, or, you know, I, I hesitate to say that there's one thing. I think there's a lot of things mm -hmm. that are contributing to this and it's sort of multiplicative. But God, if we don't figure out some way to be together with one another over that, the tension of being intolerable to one another mm. you know i just don't know how we make it i really don't mm -hmm. and and as you were pointing out you know at moments of great tension we're temporarily it seems able to, to take those blinders away and see you know the things that connect us and the things that need doing and then we're just a pair of hands if there's something that needs lifting you lift if there's something that needs carrying you carry if there's something that needs cleaning you clean you know whatever it should happen to be um, but if, if we can't figure that out, I worry that we just dice the world up into smaller and smaller and smaller capsular little enclaves 
with no concourse between them. Mm -hmm. And there's this word that is probably too politically incorrect to be used now, but you know, Peter Slaughterdyke talked about the inter-autistic relations between cells of a phone. And you know, if, if we can use that word advisedly, if it's still okay to use it, um, you know, inter-autistic strikes me as being about what it is that, that the world is becoming. We are literally idiotic. I've been, you know, in one way and another for a long time, chasing this sense that we have muscles that we just don't use and that kind of wither, not beyond um, being capable of being brought back into use, but in ways that leave us kind of uh, crippled. Um, and that a lot of those muscles have to do with the skills of coming together to do things for reasons other than because we've been paid to or told to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the logics of um, the market and the state are so pervasive that we're like out of practice. We lose the knack of other ways of coming together. And in the next breath, I've always said, and there are pockets where for one reason or another that's surviving. And, you know, it's the, the hacker spaces and the anarchist squats and the churches and so on that are those pockets where for one reason or another people have stumbled on uh, reinvented or kept uh, alive traditions of coming together to do things for reasons and so that's why in a, in a kind of pre-political way you know all religious spaces to me have a tendency to be holding something that is a pocket of resistance to the logics of the market and the state and therefore places where it's possible to get alongside and have some kind of sense of coming alive together in a way that has something in common with your sandy experience and as we've been having this conversation i've been thinking about the life houses i know already you know starting to populate this starting to think of maybe the life house as a category where some of them are or could be in religious buildings and some of them aren't but they have a feeling when you walk in there that's actually quite like the feeling that you get when you walk into a sacred space like my first time walking into access space had that feeling if i think about you know the gold gale in govan in glasgow the old boatyard that was taken over by the collective that came out of the roads protests in scotland that place has the most amazing atmosphere when you walk in there. And the last time I was there, because I did the, the first of the book launch events for Work in the Ruins, we did it on a Saturday night in February in this drafty boatyard building in, in Govan, and we had 100 people in there. And I was talking to some of the core gang at Gargale afterwards. And they were saying, we've been, you know, there's a challenge we're trying to learn how to navigate. And this, I think, might be relevant to like getting this right might be relevant to the success of life houses. They said, because we've got, you know, we've got an increasing portion of people who are drawn to our weekly Thursday night things or who are drawn to our events who are relatively privileged, certainly by the standards of the immediate community in Govan, and who are drawn by a hunger for meaning. Mm -hmm. And that's good because the space is all about meaning. It's a space of belonging. It's a space where we have the experience you know, like the experience that you describe 
of what happened as you moved into being part of the response to Sandy. And they said, and then we've got other people who are just hungry. You know, that's the, that's the everyday reality of lots of people in our immediate environs. And the challenge is that the people who are hungry for meaning tend to be, you know, like the three of us, um, highly articulate, confident at expressing themselves, able without necessarily meaning to, to take up a lot of space. <laughs> and, you know, the others can easily kind of melt into the background because we've all got lots of programming that tells us how to behave when we encounter people with different kinds of privilege. And so the the, the question is, how do you, and I think like this seems to me like one of the, the fundamental dances that we need to try and learn how to do together right now in our societies is how to get the those who for whom the primary issue is a hunger for meaning and those for whom the primary issue is real hunger or cold or whatever it is, how to create spaces and ways of being together that don't allow the first group to dominate. And part of it has to be doing stuff rather than sitting in a circle talking or having people on stage talking. 100%, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I would just add to that. Um, yeah, I, I, I one another thing I worry about is there are a lot of people um, hungry for meaning who then get caught up with um, people who exploit that is another thing. Like, you know, there's I, I know of a couple of examples that I've been following where somebody comes out um, and they're just this guru who has the answer for meaning. And it's like it's like all of the same um, traumas or abuses of of that some people have experienced in either like, uh, you know, orthodox tradition or or religion where there's a guru type figure who take takes advantage of somebody. Um, and so that's another thing that's really hard to hold in tension. Um, I do feel pretty proud that at least in our little doomer optimism space, everybody argues with me all the time and nobody takes, like nobody says that my word is uh, correct. Uh, and I think that's good. You have to model that kind of um, like friendly uh, convivial disagreement as a way of like, you know, maintaining that there's not this like ideological hierarchy. Um, but then another thing I've been thinking about as you both were speaking is just explicitly, I think, that we are in a historical moment where um, it was the case, maybe in the end of history, the last couple of decades, where people could be atomized because they had enough uh, wealth, basically, that they could outsource all of the needs of life to just third world countries, you know, people making things and shipping them to them or, you know, hiring people to do the work of daily life. And I do feel like we're probably at a point now where, and I, I'm like, we're explicitly some of the economic or social breakdown um, forces people into interdependence. And, um, and that's part of the reason we're here in Uruguay is that is it's very common here um, because of something being too expensive to sort of do completely on your own. Everybody's forced to work together to rely mm. on one another. And I, I have this example, there's this, um, there's this library here, it's a children's library. Um, and it basically got created and it's like one of, I, I would say it's like a life house type space. And I like this idea that you're bringing Dougald where the life house is 
is like a is is a type it's a type of space including it could be possibly churches churches like it is a, that those are like that's part of the model um but this library was created by this couple um the woman is a, is a librarian and a singer and the and the man is a um is it like a classical guitar player and they basically just asked the community we want to make a children's library will you all help us and so we raised we raised funds we bought a little cabin um and now every week every weekend um they go there this is outside of their normal day jobs and they sing songs for the kids and read books and and lend out and everyone's donating books and um you know what a cool space where you know the explicit goal is something practical we're going to get kids to read we're going to get them excited about reading you know this is what this is what we're doing here but then there's all of this like it's like mycelial connections between the people just yeah. from being in the space together seeing each other every week um and there's something really really important about that but uh, i think that adam your point about it being voluntary um is really important i this is something just a, one other small side note same thing with something like voluntary poverty um nobody wants to be told they can't consume x y and z thing but if you're choosing it out of a sense of like um you know feeling like too much consumerism doesn't really fill up that hole that that void and and actually um limiting your consumption in some ways makes you stronger and more resilient it's a very similar dynamic where where you're when you're choosing it it feels right and good and spiritually fulfilling when you're not it feels oppressive and like maybe even abusive yeah for sure i i think that weirdly enough for all of its limitations the horizontalist or, or anarchist tradition does have some tools that that help us you know reckon with these ideas i mean specifically uh you know you will not find a better community that that is set up to prevent the emergence of a guru figure right i mean it's it's in the name the horizontalism right it, it like there is a distributed ethos that's imminent to the entire community that is you know we will not permit the emergence of of you know concretizations or crystallizations of power and i think having that as a guiding value uh, has helped that community tremendously. There, there are other aspects of it that have probably limited it, but but that one, you know, we tend not to have those problems so much in spaces where that is the guiding ethos. So I, I think it does have things to contribute um, to this discussion about what draws us to these spaces. Uh, you know, in in the Lifehouse article, the as posted. Um, I talk about this example from again from from the time of Sandy, um, from from Sea Squat, uh, a squat on the Lower East Side of New York City, and they happened to have there was something called the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space, and they had a, a you know a stationary bicycle, dynamo generator, um, that they just happened to have as part of their collection. So, when Superstorm Sandy hit the city, the power goes down for you know a week in Lower Manhattan. Nobody has any power. They wheel this bike out onto the sidewalk. They plug it into a bank of, you know, uh, of, of battery chargers for people to come charge their phone up. Somebody's always riding the bike. People come to get their phones charged. That's the draw. But then what happens around the table 
is the the informal, the mycelial, you mm-hmm. know, the connections that that animate the community. Mm-hmm. And people wind up coming to the table because they know that's where the people are going to be. Mm-hmm. The people are the killer app. Mm-hmm. Know, ultimately, it's it's the, you know, the ability to charge your phone is sort of the uh, exoteric, and and everything underneath that is the real deal. <laughs> and and I think that this is you know, ultimately the key to the Lifehouse equation is that there, there are things that draw the people that have the hunger. And that really is what the space is oriented around, mm-hmm. is the material provision of need. And then because people are drawn to that, you know, whether as a user of those services or as a provider of those services or both. I mean, one of the things that my partner sees in the food hub that she works in is you know maybe a quarter to a third of the people who volunteer there also use the services, mm. right? And there's no shame in it. There's no there's no sense that, that this is a, a corruption or an exploitation of it. This is just you know there this is truly mutual aid. You know they're they're simultaneously providing for their neighbors and taking benefit from that relation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you start from the material provision, you get to the psychic and the affective and, and the hunger for meaning aspects of it. Um, that's that's my suspicion anyway. And and the spaces that I've seen work best are, are really founded toward the provision. You know, I, I think everybody knows what's going on sub rosa, but maybe people don't necessarily admit to it right up front. Mm-hmm. Because that's, you know, again, that, that's, kind of corny right we're all suspicious we're, we're also you know we're all hip and cool and we can't admit to to wanting to be around other people and we can't <laughs> admit you know to wanting to break bread with people over a big table and share stories and listen to songs and sing together i mean like what could possibly be cornier right and <laughs> i think that i wouldn't be surprised that that's some of the friction or the resistance is is just simply what late capitalist media have taught us is cool. Mm-hmm. Fuck that. Let's just be corny together. <laughs> I have no problem with that. I have absolutely no problem with that. Spending mm-hmm. an afternoon making cornbread, you know, having somebody play the guitar badly and singing along to that. There's nothing wrong with that. No, and I'll just, I, wa- I want to let Google talk, but I just want to briefly say, um, I don't really care what form your sincerity takes, but it has to be sincere to be on this podcast. Like it just can't be nihilism. The whole podcast is just the only thing we're not is nihilist. You know, you just cannot make that your identity. And so many people do. And I just can't, I really just can't abide it anymore. The invitation is to sincerity. I understand frustration. I understand, you know, sadness or anger about the way things are. Um, but the invitation here is toward sincerity toward I don't I don't care if it's corny what I mean and or if it's it won't be corny to you if you find like the thing that you sincerely vibe with you know for some people it's going to be like anarcho solar punk you know and for other people it'll be like traditional fiddle music and I, you know what I mean it's just it's fine whatever it is but you know drawn toward this the the the, i don't know something meaningfully sincere rather than just leaning into nihilism as an identity like that is that is the project here no well i i applaud i mean you know (laughs) i think we all know nihilism is armor right nihilism is armor against disappointment that's all it is Mm -hmm. and uh, you know we, we need to 
make it safe for people to have feeling, to, to affect and be affected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something we talk about a lot at the school here is you know, creating spaces to which it is wise to bring more of ourselves than would be welcome in most of the spaces that exist within our societies. This is not just about creating spaces to which we bring more of ourselves, because frankly, lots of corporations would like to make their workplaces places to which we bring more and more and more of ourselves. And we're very wise in defending ourselves and setting limits on how much of ourselves shows up to those spaces. The trouble is that, you know, between our workplaces and our schools and many of the families that we've grown up in and so on, we end up having very few spaces to which it is wise to bring more of ourselves. Mm. And, you know, this all kind of calls back to like um third place, uh third space um thinking and uh it's like the only the only uh the only social science text that's ever been taken up and turned into a slogan for a multinational chain when Starbucks took the concept of the third place, which is neither the home nor the workplace, mm-hmm. from that wonderful book. They, I, I'm going to forget the guy's name, but it's called The Great Good Place Good is the name place. of the book. Uh, and they literally went, right, we're having that. We're going to rebrand our, that's going to be our slogan for our cafes as we go around the world, closing down the actual third places mm-hmm. in people's communities. But I, there is a, you know, the good news is that you can create a very small pocket of time and space and it can give people a lot because of what a kind of desert of meaninglessness and not safeness so many of the spaces that we have to spend our time in if we're operating in late capitalism alike. So somewhere that, and you know, again, churches know a lot about this, somewhere that you spend an hour or two a week can be, you know, the pocket of meaning that is sort of transformational to the overall shape of your life. And, you know, at its... And it's worse that becomes simply a kind of therapeutic pocket that you know keeps you going so that you can be exploited for all the other hours of the week. <laughs> but you can create those spaces in ways which are also spaces where you can be inquiring together into what else can we be doing during the other hours of the week. And then a relatively small pocket of time and space can seed a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to... Um, oh, sorry. I'll just bri- I just want to briefly say I, there's this guy named Chris Arnotti. He uh, walks around cities all over the world in U.S. and in Europe, but all over the place. And then he just like writes about what he sees when he walks through places where tourists don't typically walk. And the thing that he keeps finding in the U.S. specifically, and he he writes about this all the time, is um, older people sitting in McDonald's. For hours and hours having coffee and talking to each other and i just mm-hmm. want to non-judgmentally say if you have no other place to do that what's the most optimistic part of his work which is very doomery is that people will find a place to do that um even if it's mcdonald's and that's actually beautiful like a beautiful part of the human spirit to see and once you open your eyes to it you can see it everywhere um, but I, we just recorded a podcast that hasn't released yet. Um, this woman wrote um, an article about how to make friends. <laughs> and it was literally like, sit in your front yard, um, go go to a bar in the afternoon and just start talking to people. People want someone to talk to. 
um, make chit chat. Um, and it's just so funny sometimes saying these things out loud that are like normal social technologies for, oh no, we lost him. Um, maybe he'll be back. Um, normal social technologies for, you know, regular regular people or, or, you know, or, I mean, I think about my parents' generation. This is not something I would have to tell them to make chit chat or to, um, you know, to interact with people regularly. We're starting from a low baseline. We're starting from kind of withered muscles. We're starting from the need for kind of remedial exercises for remembering how to be human together because we've had ways of organizing our societies that have been so successful at teaching us that we're better off apart. Right. And so, you know, I, and, and there's a kind of usefully humbling quality in that. It has a way of kind of pulling those of us who have been taught to think of ourselves as the people who live closest to the future down to earth and reminding us that we're actually the most helpless people the most clueless people <laughs> and uh and that that's okay we can start from here because mm-hmm. it's where we are yeah totally um oh, well we lost um adam for a moment do you have anything um that we you and i should discuss um while we're waiting for him to come back i feel like um i'd be curious to know about this um illich and and conviviality we didn't really touch on that uh, at all in our last hmm. podcast um and yeah. and what yeah what is your what is your take on on illich is he the is he the scholar we we or you know the thinker we a lot of people are looking to him at, at the moment well it's nice because you know 20 years ago when i discovered illich no one was reading him really um he just died and like i have a whole collection of illich books which i got um through sort of uh a books online in about 2003 4 5 and uh they're all stamped of kind of discarded from university libraries and it gives you this picture of how you know there had been a time where no university library was complete without being equipped with a full set of the works of Illich. And by the beginning of this century, um, they those were among the things that could safely be got rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's great that so many people have been rediscovering Illich from different angles over the last 10 years or more. Um, I mean, so the, the event that we did uh, where Adam and I crossed paths, um, it was the Design Museum in London, which is quite a shiny museum organized this convivial tools day where they had various people um who were kind of talking from one angle or another in relation to Illich's work I remember there was this old guy who uh was 92 he was the same age that Illich would have been if he was still around who had known Illich when they were both like visiting professors at Penn State in the 80s Mm. um and he just told some stories and then I'd kind of done my uh, sort of keynote about um, what Illich meant to me and kind of weaving all sorts of connections. And afterwards, this guy, whose name I've forgotten, he came up to me and he said, to me, Illich was very much a person. And he was like, yeah, he was kind of old enough that he wasn't like, like most of Illich's friends and collaborators who I had met were kind of you know, younger than him and therefore kind of looking up to him, whereas this was someone who'd known him as a peer, as a contemporary, 
I was going, yeah, it's really strange for me to spend a day listening to all of you lot talking about Illich because he's become something else for you. But for me, he was just a human being. Mm. So that was, um, Adam, while you were gone, we were just talking about the, the Convivial Tools event where you and I first crossed paths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, I My internet died right when you were talking about the old people in McDonald's and I was literally hanging on the edge of my seat. I was like, I wanted to hear what they were doing there. It sounds incredibly Oh, yeah. They just have coffee and um, they talk to each other. And it's like a cool space because, you know, even in McDonald's, people can find each other and find friendship and and relationality so that's that's reassuring yeah Um, yeah so like i literally i have this pen from that from that from that meeting um the uh the illich thing um yeah i think they wanted that space to be like a mcdonald's where old people would get together and talk i think that they wanted to provide a long table it was Ashley. It was it, did did Dougal mention the the institution that had hosted that that event? Yep, briefly, but not yeah. not in depth. You can describe it if you want. Uh it was. I'm not even sure how to describe it. To be honest, it was like the folly of an architect. It was. It was like mm. you know some architect late in life had built himself a compound in a very nice part of London, a very leafy and quiet. And, and reasonably wealthy part of London. And he built this incredibly idiosyncratic cluster of structures. Um, and then the design museum and a, a partner that I'm, I cannot recall um, hosted this conversation there. And, and they invited, you know, some really people who, who have turned out to be important to me in a bunch of ways. I mean, they, mm. they had I would say, you know, good instinct for who, who to be around that table. Mm. But they failed. Um, I, I, there's this Yiddish term that comes from the tradition of like Jewish summer entertainment resorts in the Catskills. Oh. It's a tumbler. And a tumbler was somebody, you know, like, basically like working class jews would come to these resorts in the summertime from all over the northeast and they they would be you know in family groups and and clusters and and they didn't know one another real well and so the tumbler was like a professional icebreaker a little bit a little bit insult comedian a little bit you know storyteller a little bit matchmaker there are all these functions folded up and then the tumbler was like the catalyst you know, that made community happen so that by the time people went home from their week or two weeks or whatever it was at the resort, there was a real functioning usness there. Mm-hmm. And I thought that what that event really needed to do was a tumbler. Mm-hmm. Um, because I got into great conversations with the people on either side of me. But we didn't we didn't have, you know, like I saw you and I thought, Wow, that's the Dark Mountain guy. I've been following his work for ages. I love, you know, and then and then we just sat at opposite ends of the table or whatever. And then it, you know, we yeah, we talked until five years later. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm now thinking that like what was that time? Is it a tumbler? Tumbler. T u m m l e r. Tumbler. Yeah. Right. I feel like like life houses need tumblers as well. Like yeah. this is actually a a role that you you need to kind of sow the seeds of uh I'll, i will spread that one um yeah no you're absolutely right it was it was surreal um we were staying yeah for like two nights in this it was like 
it was on the market for 22 and a half million pounds or something, that compound of those four buildings. And it had won some award. And it was really funny because I ended up there because Ben Vickers, who by that stage was, and he was doing things like the Unmonastery Project in um, Matera in Italy, and he was working with the Serpentine Gallery. I'd met Ben in 2009 when him and his mates were squatting this enormous townhouse in Mayfair and they opened it as the temporary school of thought and I came down and gave a talk about Illich this like epic squat I wrote about it in the first issue of Dark Mountain Uh, and that was on the front page of the one of the London newspapers as the 20 and a half million pound squat so I was like oh wow this is where we've gone in a decade from like unauthorized, very convivial gatherings in ridiculously expensive empty buildings in London to authorize somewhat less convivial, although convivially named gatherings in yep. similarly absurdly expensive empty spaces in London. So that was, yeah, that's a weird det- detour. But I actually feel like this is the, I, I had, um, do you guys remember the, the magazine Adbusters? Did either of oh, you yeah. ever read that? Um, I just felt like there was like this sense around that time. I don't know. I, I was reading it, I guess, in like 06 through t- 2012 or 2010 or something. And it was like, oh, look at this. It's like, you know, look at all the fun things we can do. I think there was they had this a manifesto printed in it, the tear it down manifesto. And I, at the time, um, was working for a professor at the University of Chicago, which is famous for this neoliberal economics. So I ripped it out and I photocopied it and put it on the doors of all these economics professors. It was just like this feeling of like doing something, aliveness, you know, and I don't know, like something has in the last, I don't know, decade or so feels like less alive. Although I feel like now it's starting to pick up steam again. Um one other thing I wanted to mention when you were talking about the Tumblr is another tradition that we could look to that I've always loved. And I did one of these once and it was great. Jeffersonian dinner, um, Thomas Jefferson. There's a rule for how you do a dinner, according to Thomas Jefferson. Um, you can only have eight to 14 people at one table. Um, you, everybody has to be at the same table. Um, you have to have a topic for the evening it has to be a meal. Um, it can't just be like sitting around at the table. We have to eat together. Um, and everybody has to come with a list of five to seven questions to incorporate into the conversation. You start with everybody telling their story. Um, so a personal reflection, why they're there or some, you know, some kind of story to get um, everybody gets a chance to speak. Let the conversation um, take you wherever the passion goes. So nobody's like guiding it. We're just letting it um, play out as it plays out. Um, As the host, you have to ensure that all participants feel welcome and have a chance to talk. But you don't run it like a meeting. You have to, you know, in a a smooth way, invite people into the conversation. Um, And then um, at the end, everybody gets a chance to to just sort of reflect on the on the dinner and go around again. So that's like a, just a, it's a social technology. I've done one before and it was just lovely um, yeah. actually sticking to the rules, because sometimes like the the structurelessness can things fill fill that up um, if you don't have the rules. But if you do have the rules, people kind of think it's fun and funny. Um 
And it ended up working out really well when I, I did a Jeffersonian dinner on the topic of like um, sustainable urbanism with some colleagues and some friends. And um, what a what a great technology. And there, there's like, you know, people have figured this kind of thing out before. Um, so every time I, I, I have the, I have the um, opportunity to get together with people, I try to do some at least some version of this. Um, and it, yeah, I think it works. Some some kind of these we we figured these some of these social technologies out before the Tumblr, the Jeffersonian dinner. You know, there's like the um, group size that that people can kind of wrap their head around. If it's thirty people at a table, it's really hard to talk all together. You know, eight to fourteen is seems like the sweet spot. Um, yeah. Okay, so I, I think we, sorry. Go ahead, Adam. No, I just that there are two really important things in what you said that I just I'm I'm making mental note of myself. Um, the the idea of these are technologies, right? And and they can reproduce, they can be reproduced, they can be you know learned and and, and elaborated. Um, but the other is that that quality you said to invite people in. I think that the invitationality mm. is so crucial. You know we particularly in technology, have obsessed for many years over the formal openness of systems. You know, we say, oh, this is this is open. Anybody can contribute to it. Anybody can be a part of it. There are no barriers to entry. And I think that that's insufficient. It's inadequate, right? I mean, that there's, there's an unacknowledged privilege in saying, oh, you know, anybody can come sit down at this table. No, you know, the, the tyranny of structurelessness is real. Yeah. And there are no structures, then as you as you said before, people like us are gonna dominate it. I, right. I will talk my, you know, I, I will I will eat up all the space, you know. So if there isn't some regulation there that 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 I voluntarily signed mm -hmm. on to that regulates. You know, at the IWW meetings we used to do, there was like, you know, a kind of agreement that, that you could only really ask three questions in one night, right? Mm -hmm. Or like speak, you know, just just informally, but like pay attention to the number of times that you were speaking. And even that little bit of structure makes places actively invitational for, and this is an aspect of things that I don't think we've spoken to, I think that we are collectively acquiring a much greater sophistication as to the real ambit of neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. Like we are not all the same. And I don't even mean in the, in the sense that, you know, neurotypical neurodivert, I mean that there are an infinite number of ways to show up and be human. There are as many ways to show up and be human as there are human beings. Mm -hmm. And we're clearly all pretty verbal. <laughs> um, there are ways of showing up and participating that have nothing to do with that. And I think that one social technology that I'd like to refine and, and see adopted more are ways for people to show up as themselves and contribute. That, you know, Jeffersonian dinners for those of us who love to talk mm -hmm. and quieter ways for people who, you know, even that invitationality asks more of them than they're willing or able to offer. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and this is something this is like um understanding a human community as as an ecosystem with a great many different niches mm -hmm. and, and and that they're all equally valuable and 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 key to the smooth functioning of the whole and i think that again traditionally we might have understood this better than we do now since you know the kind of fordist taylorist disciplinary uh the imposition of disciplinary grids over our behavior in an attempt to extract value from from our bodily conduct. Mm -hmm. I think that sort of refined us to a place that, that isn't doing us any good. Um, are we, I, I feel like um, when we got cut off before, I guess you'll edit that out eventually or? No, we just kept talking, so it's fine. Yeah. Oh, super. Yeah. Um, but maybe we should, wrap up by with final thoughts thinking about um what you know where this lighthouse concept um where does it go from here um anything that we haven't discussed that feels like burning that we should have on the record on this podcast mm -hmm. uh well first you know I felt cheated when I thought that I wasn't going to be able to come back to the conversation of just thanking you, you know, yeah. for for the platform and the space and the opportunity to talk. It's it's been wonderful. I'm really grateful. So so thank you for having me and Dougal, thank you for for you know facilitating this. Gotcha. And um I'm I'm just I couldn't possibly be more pleased with the opportunity to talk these ideas through with people with your backgrounds and 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 perspectives. Aww. Um I I think that uh, Lifehouse is is catching on. I mean, I, I have 20 years of blogging and I know what it's like when something goes viral. It doesn't happen very often for me because <laughs> I express myself in an idiosyncratic way that, you know, like it, it's very rare that, that things that I write kind of smolder and catch fire in larger groups of people, but this one is. And uh, I think part of that is due to some of the people that Google has shared it with. But I think part of that is also, as you say, you know, we're in a historical juncture where the material conditions make something something very much like this idea very interesting to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And maybe all it needed was the name. Mm. Um, so, you know, I will work toward the realization of that vision in whatever capacity I'm afforded, you know, whether it was like at Occupy Sandy, where I'm just like, you know, somebody establishes something like that in my community, and I just show up there and, and you know, help with the water filtration system or whatever, or if it is, you know, more rhetorical and, and helping to spread the idea, what whatever seems most useful, I'm down for. Mm. And I'm just grateful that, um, you know, that, that I helped midwife this idea into being. Mm. I keep thinking of um, the line from Fight Club. It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. All we did was give it a name. Mm -hmm. yes, uh, <laughs> um, Adam, if people are listening to this and I, it's kind of sparked something for them, should they just drop you a line? What's the like? A, any suggestions for how to pick up and run with it? Yeah, I'm easy to get a hold of. So you know my blog which i've recently kind of jump started back into being after a long interval of not writing on it is it speedbird.wordpress.com um so you know and and there's a contact form on there 
but uh, I'm also on Mastodon. I'm at uh, social.coop, uh, just at Adam Greenfield, my name, just one word. I'm super easy to get a hold of. Um, and but but more importantly, you know, people should not think of me as a uh, you know a point on the critical path toward the realization of this. It's like do do it yourself, do it in your own community. Uh, you don't you certainly don't need to get my approval or my chop on something. Um, it's the the idea is there for people to take with as and 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 permutate as they will. You know, I I would love to hear about it, but. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not like the Lifehouse guy. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I won't be publishing, uh, you know, 3995, here's your own Lifehouse kit or anything like that. <laughs> that's so funny because that's like exactly what we say about Doomer Optimism all the time. And same thing with like homesteading or homeschooling. Like you're not going to get like a, a pig kit. You're not going to get that. You have to figure out how to do it on your own place. Like it just doesn't. It is one of those things like the only way out is through. So um, I love that um, messaging. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll send us all those links um, and we'll put them in the episode description. Um, this was lovely. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you, Dougal, for the um, for the for the suggestion. Thank you for co-hosting. Um, yeah, just smiling this whole conversation. Really, really lovely to talk to you guys. Groovy. Thanks so much. It's awesome. Take care of yourselves, please. Yeah. And, and yeah. I look forward to speaking with you again. Great. All right. We'll be in touch. Bye, guys. Thank you.